Well, it is a joy and it is a privilege to be with you guys this morning to worship with you. Um, I think so highly of all of you as you guys um, are a faithful church to preach the word, but you take seriously the equipping of others. And I have been a benefit of your love and faithfulness. Um, I went to the weekender. I was amazed. I was amazed by your love, by the encouragement that I received, and by the equipping that helped me as I went back home to shepherd the flock. The highlight for me for the weekender, as much as I love Justin and everyone who spoke, was by far being right here with you on Sunday morning. And then coming to your members meeting, I was, I was moved. And so I am so excited to be with you this morning and to open up the word with you. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn there. If you're not sure where 1 Peter is, it's really easy to get there. You can go to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, and it's just a few books in. You got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, Easy this week to find where we are. Now, while I'm doing that, I must say, when I was in Los Angeles, I was struck by who this person was who would wear such bright sport coat jackets and who had not just one, but many bow ties. And I remember the first time he spoke, who is this fiery southerner with the bright bow tie? And you already know. And I came, it is your pastor, and I came to love your pastor for that, Um, but I don't share the bow ties with him. So, well, this morning, let's begin and read 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 14. We'll touch on verse 5 a little bit. I'm not going to cover all of this section. We're looking at the big picture of Peter's final word. And so we want to give that um, our attention this morning, and then I will pray and ask God to bless this time that we have. So if you would, follow along with me as I read. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Verse 14 is not something that I think is generally to be practiced here this morning, 
But as I'm learning, as I'm going to be at Grace Church Miami, it's a little different down there. But this is cultural. We're in verse 14. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together this morning as we open up your word. Lord, open up our hearts this morning that we might be humble, that we might be teachable, that we might hear. Give us ears to see, eyes to see the truth of your word this morning. Lord, we thank you in advance for the wisdom, for the instruction that this text provides in helping us to stand firm in the midst of life's hardships, when life proves difficult, when we're tempted to perhaps give up, and that temptation is ever-present, Lord, renew and strengthen our hearts this morning. Father, I also pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the beauty of your salvation. Lord, that if there be anyone who is not in Christ this morning, they would see you anew. They would see your salvation. They would see your Son. And Lord, give me zeal for his name. Give me clarity with the gospel this morning. Give me clarity with your word that we might grow and mature in Christ and glorify you. Amen. Of all the disciples, there is one that I find very fascinating, and it is Peter. He's interesting, I think in a good way. And I found it interesting that uh, he's mentioned a lot. In fact, he's mentioned approximately 210 times. Maybe you didn't know this, but he has mentioned more than Paul, who's only mentioned about 162. And Peter is still mentioned more than all the other apostles put together. They're only mentioned 142 times if you collectively put them together. He's a noteworthy disciple. And I want to just kind of give us a little bit of context of who Peter is and then of the book of 1 Peter so we can rightly understand his final word here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter was a fisherman. How many of you like to fish? I love to fish. But I know nothing of salt water. I only know fresh. So I have, but I love to fish. And I'm open to all things fishing. So I have much respect for Peter. He's fourth in line to be a disciple. He was privileged. He wasn't just one of the 12. He was one that was in that kind of inner circle with Jesus. Now, he wasn't the one whom Jesus loved but he was one of the three. And when we think of Peter and what he witnessed, of what he saw, he saw Jesus' preaching ministry. He saw Jesus' healing ministry. He saw Jesus' compassion and affection for those whom he made. He was there when Jesus was arrested. He was there when Jesus was betrayed. He's the one whose aim was a little off. He didn't actually stop anyone, but he cut off an ear no problem for Jesus. He just put it right back on. Peter, just, just hang on. This is not your occupation. Stick to fishing. He was far from perfect, though. I think that's one of the things we like about Peter, because we can relate to him, because he was praised by Jesus and then rebuked by Jesus, praised by Jesus, rebuked by Jesus, praised by Jesus and rebuked by Jesus. And sometimes we just feel like that's our Christian life. And we can relate to him. But one of the things that I love about Peter, and whenever we dive into 1 Peter, we need to understand this is not the Peter who is in the Gospels. This is a Peter who has learned and been discipled 
whom Jesus invested in, and we get to see the fruit of that. We get to see the lessons learned. He's far from perfect, but God used him mightily. He used him on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel. Revival broke out. He was a fisher of men. He was a shepherd of the sheep, but he was also a leader amongst leaders, and he was one that was tasked specifically by Jesus to strengthen the church and to strengthen those who are under tremendous uh, difficult situations. As we come into 1 Peter, we understand, if we're to understand the context, we, we have to understand these are Christians who are going and petering. They're going through hardships. And Peter's interesting in that too, he's one who would serve and lead with a tremendous task and a ministry that he knew in advance was going to cost him his life. He was going to be all in or not in. And he was all in. And knowing too what was going to come for him, this actually had an incredible positive effect on his life. And it also had an effect on him then being able to, in such a wonderful way, minister to those who suffer, who go through hardships. And so this morning as we look at this, we have to understand he's ministering to those persecuted for their faith. And it's kind of difficult to understand at this time, 1 Peter versus 2 Peter. By 2 Peter, there is especially this intensity of persecution by this emperor Nero. And we're not going to get Nero a whole lot, but if you've done any study, he was horrible. Tasked with some pretty wicked things. His own people turned on him knowing this man is crazy. This man has gone mad. This man would persecute Christians, light them on fire for his own garden parties. Now, whether or not that's happened in First Peter, I think is difficult to tell. But they're under tremendous social pressure, and it's only building from here. Some of them would be labeled traitors. Other of them have this tremendous social pressure. They're certainly experiencing persecution that is only intensifying. And we need to understand that. So what's Peter going to say? What's he going to do? And this is what makes Peter such a wonderful book as a whole, because he starts with the firm foundation of Jesus. He starts with our faith in Jesus and then moves in Jesus chapter getting into more our growing in Christ. So he starts with our faith in Jesus chapters 1 and 2 and then our growing in Christ likeness the rest of the book. And he really has three very uh, simple themes of our salvation. And I think that's why he gives us that you know, what is our firm foundation? He wants to understand that we would understand the building blocks of our faith, that our doctrine be solidified in what Christ has accomplished. So he would start there. And then he would address submission. Ooh, that's tough. And then he would address suffering. And how is he going to end this? So those are the three themes. That's sort of the overview of the picture. This is his final word. So, this morning, we're going to be looking at this. And just before we kind of dive in, I wanted to point your attention to the end of verse 12, where I think this summarizes the book as a whole. Peter, 
is preparing, verse 12, for the Christian life as he was preparing them for the Christian life. And in verse 12, at the very end there, it says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then he gives them this command, this imperative to stand firm in it, to be rooted and grounded in it. And this is the theme throughout his book. This is a command that we see where Peter's reaching the end. He's preparing us for the Christian life so that we can stand firm to the end. And so he wants us to understand this. Peter knows in order for us to finish well, we have to understand our salvation well. And as we get in here, we must understand, we must be rooted and grounded and fixed in the grace of God. And what's interesting about Peter is he gives us so many commands, which often we just feel like when we're giving a list of rules, it feels burdensome. These commands feel like it weighs us down. But what's interesting is about the gospel, when we get these commands in scriptures, I want to point out something. This is something that one commentator points out, Thomas Schreiner. I think this is so helpful. He says, God's commands are always rooted in His grace. So one thing we can note is that when we come to these commands in Scripture, they're rooted in grace. It's unmerited favor, actually. It's for your good. It's for your protection. And another way of putting this is to say that the indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ, he says, is always the basis of the imperative of how we should live our lives. I find that helpful. So this morning, as I'm going to be looking at several imperatives, We need to keep in mind, these things are rooted in grace. They're for our good. And Peter knows this. And he has a final word to give them. And really, rather than us diving into each verse here, which we don't have time for, this final word and section, I want us to look kind of like holistically here, at the end here. What's his final word to us? What's his final word? And I think he has three final words for us that help us to stand firm to the end. And we need these. Because we're weak without His grace. How are we going to stand firm this morning? And this is where He prepares us. The final word that helps us live life and finish life. And where I want us to focus on here, these final words, three final words for us. One of humility, one of resistance, we'll see, and one of grace. Humility, resistance, and grace. Super simple outline, right? Humility, resistance, and grace. But if you forget that, just remember these things are the key to standing firm. And that's his point. These three are an end The end game here is that we would stand firm in our faith. That's what Peter wants to equip them for. He knows what is coming for himself and he knows what's coming for them. I found it interesting that Augustine was once asked this question. And this is helpful for us. He was asked, what is the most important quality in a Christian? And you're like... Is it humility, resistance, and grace? Verse 5, not. (laughs) 
But I think if you were to stare at our text at verse 5, 6, and 7, you would agree with St. Augustine that perhaps the most important quality in a Christian, the three most important qualities in a Christian, is humility, humility, and humility. Without humility, there's no teachability, right? Without humility, there's no receiving of grace. Without humility, there's no maturing in Christ. We need God to humble us if we're going to receive His grace. And there's this truth, right, that we can know a lot about God, but if we're not humble, we will not live for Him. And that's the danger every time we read the Scriptures is that this would build some intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is, that if we were given a theological test, a systematic theology exam, we would pass it with flying colors. But are we living for Him? You won't without humility. So this morning we're going to give our attention to this word humility. And what is humility? Now, our world views this very differently than the Bible, but this morning we are going to ignore the world's defining of this. We're looking to the Scriptures this morning. How does the Scriptures define? How does the Scriptures picture humility for us? And I think a fascinating study would be to look at the life of Mary. As we think about Mary who saw a picture of humility day in and day out. She lived it. And I wonder what moment and what she would say would define for us if she wanted to paint a picture, if she was a, an artist, how would you paint humility for us? What from the life of Jesus taught you humility? When were you humbled, Mary? And maybe it would be the time that the angel came to her and said, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. But I wonder if it was other, something else. Maybe it was the time that he was born and she had to change his diaper and she realized she's changing the Son of God's diaper. That the Son of God became a man. I wonder if it's the moment that he would scrape his knee and she would have to tend him. That she would care for him when she would wipe his tears. When she would tell him it's time for bed. Mothers, you'll appreciate this. Can you imagine having a child that when you said, okay, it's time for bed now, Okay, thank you, I'd love to. Joyful heart, perfect, complete obedience. Whatever you say, Mom. Tell me anything and I'll do it. Do you think that would be encouraging? I actually think it'd be very humbling. I wish I would have your obedience, son. And be amazed. And then I think life would be very sanctifying to have other children with such a stark contrast. Peter also, this obviously had quite an effect on him. What painting would he, how would he picture this? What would he paint? And I think he's doing that here. I actually think he's very picture-oriented. I think he's recalling so much of the Gospels here. Look at verse 5 for a moment. What was Peter thinking about? What did he have in his mind? When he said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I think it's here he's actually defining humility for us with these words. Clothe yourselves. means to put on or tie. And this isn't a reference to just simply one's outward appearance here. I think he's noting something else. As been noted by others, this is a picture of one's character, of one's attitude, and of one's heart. This isn't just something outward when he's saying clothe yourselves. 
This is something inward. This is, humility is inward. It's also a mindset. It actually means a lowliness of mind. It's this attitude of the heart. And I think this is a mindset that he's putting on. And this is the mindset, though, note, of every servant. And Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And Peter knew that. Humility is a mindset of every servant. It's actually the mindset of every servant who would put on his apron to serve another. And in that day and in that context, when you put on your apron, you were identifying yourself as a servant, as a slave. And not as a freed man. So when Peter is thinking through humility, and even to this day, when you Google humility, one of the pictures that comes up is this picture. And I think Peter here is picturing that of an apron that one puts on, like the apron that Jesus put on. That was the moment that Jesus did the unthinkable. When Jesus put on an apron, and Peter was sitting, and Jesus got down on his knees, the Son of God, becoming a servant, and he washed his muddy feet. There's a mindset here. There's a humility here. There's a posture here of serving one another. And this is not something that you can merely develop in your quiet time and your devotions. We need to understand humility is something that's developed and cultivated as we serve one another. As we put on the mindset of a servant who puts others first. Humility is such that we must love others first and gladly go last. Oh, how different this is from the world. We're always trying to one-up each other. That was not Jesus. He was painting a picture for the disciples of one of humility, but one that was so necessary if the disciples were going to stand firm to the end. They must be humble. They must be willing to serve. They must not go first. They must be willing to give themselves away. True humility is more than an inward attitude, one said. But it's externally obvious in our willingness to serve and love one another. That's humility. It is humility that the disciples must have in order to finish well. Now what we need to see here in verse 5, the context here is in our relationship to one another. But when we come to verse 6, the context here and where I'm beginning this morning is in our humility and our relationship to God. So you have verse 5, our relationship with one another in humbleness. But verse 6 and 7 challenges our humility before our God. So look with me to verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. So what's the proper time? Well, it might be now, might be later. I think there's a partial fulfillment. It's not to say that we're never exalted now, but I think this is primarily something that comes later when Christ comes again and we're exalted and glorified with Him. And just to backtrack for a second here, there's a very key phrase we must not miss, and it's under the mighty hand of God. 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. When we rightly understand God for who He is, it humbles us. But this is a reference. I like MacArthur's study Bible. It explains it very well, very simply. He says this. This is an Old Testament symbol of the power of God working in the experience of men, always accomplishing His sovereign purpose. I think that's key. It's the power of God working in our experiences, always accomplishing His purpose. His reminds, not our purpose, but His purpose. So Peter here is reminding them, as he's reminding us, humble ourselves, submit to the sovereign plan of God, even when it brings suffering. But what I like about verse 6 is that he gives us hope. God will exalt you in the proper time. There is good news here. Just briefly look at verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who who's, has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think when we're going through suffering, we need to read verse 10. We need to understand what he himself will do one day. Now, there is something for us to note here. If we're going to understand humility, we have to understand the danger of pride. And verse 5 is something we can't pass up. Just it could, God is opposed to the proud. He hates the proud. It could not be a more ominous picture here. This is God standing on the battlefield ready to stand against his opponents. That's what he's saying here. God is opposed to the proud. The picture for the proud, it can't be more ominous. He's reminding us of this. God hates the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's no greater incentive than that, to humble ourselves. And to understand the danger of our pride. When we become proud, we need to watch ourselves. I believe it's important for us to note God's deepest desire is not to stand against us, but His deepest desire is to extend His grace. Without humility, there's no grace. And Peter is urging us with an urgency here and a command for our good, understanding it's rooted in grace. Be humble. Humble yourselves in relation to God. Now, verse 7 also helps us understand this, how this humility is going to affect our relationship with God, because it says in verse 7, casting all our anxieties on Him. We were not made to carry our own anxieties. And when we do, we're proud. This casting here that Peter's mentioning, it is a, it's depicting something that is decisive. It's an energetic act. It's one of those that they would do quite commonly in those days of taking their blanket and then throwing it and placing it on the donkey. What are we to do with our anxieties? We're not to hold on to them. We're to remove them from us and place them onto the Lord. 
place them onto our God. And so the picture that I think he's painting here for us is that all our anxieties, if we were to pin this together into a blanket, is not something that we can cuddle with. We need to understand this blanket that we weave, all our worries, all our anxieties, all our guilt, it will swallow you up. You were not made for that. You must place them on your God. This must be a decisive act that we do. And this isn't just a one-time action. This is a continual action for the believer of casting all our anxieties daily upon Him. Not just some, but all of them. And how fast they come upon us. But what are we to do with them? We're to get rid of them. But then how are we to do this? It says casting all our anxieties on Him. On Him, the one that can handle them. And we say, why? Why should I do that? Well, look down at your Bible. Casting all our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. Believer, do you understand? He cares for you. God cares for you. All your anxieties. And sometimes we we don't want to share all our anxieties to him because we know other people have more anxieties than us. But he says, no, I want all of them. I care for you. I care about your specific anxieties that you personally are facing. I care. And you are not meant to hold on to those. So lay them on him. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm not a Christian. What about me? Does, does, does God care for me? And I want to encourage you. He does care for you. And I want to show you some other passages to show His care for you. I would encourage you, if you're looking for, how does God care for, for me? If your anxieties are swallowing you up, if your burden seems heavy today, if you feel like Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim who's carrying this large boulder, all of his weight is pushing him down. I would urge you to read John 3.16. This is why God sent his son, that you might believe in him. I would urge you to look at Matthew 11.28, hear from the lips of Jesus who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. This was pilgrim. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I would encourage you to look at Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're wondering, does God care for me? Look at the cross and see His care for you. Repent and place your faith in Him. He cares. As we think about Peter's word to us, though, we must understand the importance of humility. We need humility. And we, but he doesn't stop there. We could end this morning here, and we could have looked at verses 5, 6, and 7, and there's so much here, but I want us to get a bigger picture. There's a need for resistance. So look down at this next section here. There's a need to stand through life's storms. One commentator puts it, kind of comparing this last section to this section. He says, worries condemned, but watchfulness is demanded. Worriness is condemned, but watchfulness is demanded. And I want you to look down at verses 8 and 9. 
What's he say here? Just look at the first couple of words at the beginning of verses 8 and 9. Very, very heavy here. Be sober-minded. Then he says, be watchful. Maybe your Bible says alert or vigilant. And then verse 9, it starts with resist him, firm in your faith. He's giving us tips here on how to resist and our need for resistance. We must be sober-minded. We must be calm and collected in the midst of life's storms. And we're not calm and collected here because we are trusting in our own strength. We're trusting in the strength that God supplies. We're humbling ourselves. We're completely relying on God. There's a humble reliance here. That's what this sober-mindedness is, this calm, collected, trusting in, standing firm in the gospel. There's this mental and physical strength that God supplies that we need. And then he says this, be watchful. And he's not saying the same thing. He's saying, keep your eyes open. Kind of depicts like a watchman, right? You think of a soldier on the wall. No one's more ready than the person who understands that their life is on the line. So they're watching, always looking in the dark. Where's the enemy? Where's he coming? They're looking for where he, where they might even least expect him because they don't want to be caught off guard. He understands not only is his life, but everyone else's life is on the line here. So I must keep my eyes open. I must stay awake. I think Peter's reminded of this because he wasn't very good at this. If you remember, right, Jesus asked him right before he was going to be betrayed, he's going to go pray. He said, watch and and pray. And Jesus is burdened, right? He's about to die. And what happens? It's like Peter took melatonin. He just fell asleep. He's done. Good night, Peter. Matthew 26, 40, and he said to Peter, and I think he would remember this, and this might be why he's wanting to remind them of this in the last moments here. He understood the last moments of Jesus, the need to be alert, and he failed in that moment. He doesn't want them to make the same mistake. Jesus said to him, so you could not watch with me one hour. One hour, Peter. I think he remembered that. Verse 9 says, resist him in your faith. As I think about this sober-mindedness, watchful, I had this opportunity to practice this. Uh, My uncle once, um, you know, you might have good stories with your uncles. Most of mine are positive with this uncle. This one was not my favorite. Terrified me. I remember I worked for my uncle. That was a good experience, but this was to do another job. Because uh, my aunt came in and something was wrong, I could tell. Uh, My cousins were there. Um, They had somewhat of an argument. There was something about a child who left a a window open and then the bat flew in. And uh, I didn't get all the details till I was in the car on the way to the bat. Um, I didn't think that was part of my job description was uh, rodent removal or bat removal. But uh, it became that day. And uh, I never played tennis, but I got a tennis racket. I love ping pong, but it's very different. 
I understand the ping-pong motion, but the, the racket thing and then the bat flying in all directions was just like a, my worst nightmare occurred. And I learned one thing about my uncle, and that is that I did not know he could scream at such a high pitch. And then he screamed at this high pitch, and then I matched his pitch. And then the bat would fly, and he would scream at this high pitch, and then I would match that pitch. And it was just this terrifying moment. I think we both just felt ashamed. <laughs> Till the moment, like, we stunned it. We didn't kill it. Actually, the dog did, but that's fine. I'm good with that. It was awful. But I was anything... I was alert. I mean, I tell you, my eyes were open the whole time, and my mouth was the entire time. But I was not sober-minded. And we must understand the importance Are we equipped to resist? Are we equipped to be both sober-minded and alert when things come our way? Now, I remember when Justin preached the last time I was here, and he ruined my ignorant understanding of the beauty of palm trees by talking to me about rats. Thank you. But there's a story I tell you. There's a reason why I tell you this story. The, the reason is we need desperately to ask our God for sober-mindedness and for watchfulness. I cannot tell you enough how important this point is. Humility is important, but resistance is needed. And you must be sober-minded, you must be alert, You must resist. And he's telling us here why we need this. And it's not because we're fighting against rats and bats. Look down here. What's the force that we need to fight? It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. This is no bat. It's a lion. Seeking someone to devour. Note the devil prowls around. It's a fun thing to watch. But there's the kill zone is really about 35 meters. And it's interesting to watch how deathly quiet they are. Because their best approach, right, is the silent approach. And once they have you within so many meters, it's too late. That's what Peter's telling us. Keep your eyes open. Have your mind about you. And how better to equip ourselves, how better to be sober-minded than to be reading the Word of God. One author writes this about the devil. He says, Smiling is as easy for the devil as roaring, and adept at both, and whichever he is bent on evil. Devour means to drink down. This is what Satan is seeking to do. This is what he's looking for. He's to destroy. This is what he seeks. This is John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's the opposite of the Savior. Satan comes to devour. Jesus came to save. Satan seeks to destroy The Savior comes to save. 
And just note here, Peter is giving us a lesson here of resistance. He says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is not hypothetical to Peter. Luke 22, and there's a section here, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, Peter says, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you may not fail. He says that, I'm sorry, he doesn't say that you may not fail, that your faith may not fail. And it didn't. Peter knows what it's like. Satan wants us to worry to be destroyed, to carry our own burdens. Peter's reminding us, you're not meant to do that. You are not meant to do that. And what I like about this, and I would just encourage you, why don't you just turn to real quickly Ephesians 6, because this is so helpful here. This isn't just something that Peter does. I don't want you to think that this is some isolated instant where just Peter is talking to us about this. But the Apostle Paul talked about this as well. He gives the same advice. And both of these things, this is advice to stand firm. Humility and resistance is to help us to stand firm in our faith. And Paul likewise gives the same advice. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against it. Resist the schemes of the devil. I mean, this is what he's telling us. He's like, this is how you both are on the defense and on the offense. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Notice here, it doesn't say, take up some of the armor. No, take up the whole armor of God. Trust in His strength. Trust in His might. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up. And did you know just the emphasis here on God? It's by His strength. It's by His might that He enables us by His grace to stand firm. Standing firm is not based on our giftedness. Standing firm is based on holding on to the grace of God. So this morning, we have resistance We've talked about humility. And there's also one more. Grace. Grace. And I think this is important to note. Because as we look at these two things. One commentator notes. On one hand. We're being personally attacked. But on the other hand. We're also personally being perfected by our Savior. And these things often happen at the same time. The personal attack and our personally being perfected by our Savior. And so this morning as we look at grace, let's keep that in mind. And this is a wonderful thing. It beautifully describes this 
personally being perfected by Christ. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you want to stand firm in your faith, we must remember grace. Humility, resistance, and grace. There's an eternal mindset that we have here. One day we're going to be with Him in glory eternally. And this is not ourselves who will accomplish this. He says, will Himself. I love that. He will do this. We can have confidence in this. He will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish you. This morning, just by way of review, remember humility. It is three most, possibly the most important quality in a Christian. Maybe the three most important qualities, right? Humility, humility, humility. I think if we're here this morning and we're saying, how do I rightly discern if I struggle with this? Peter helps us with that. Are you casting all your anxieties on him? If not, it's a sign of pride. It's a sign of self-sufficiency. And we need to understand God. We need to humble him in whatever he is bringing our way. He works through our experiences, but he is a sovereign God. Lastly, we have resistance Resist the evil one, but we need to understand here, I don't want you to think this is isolated to just resisting the evil one. He's talking about resisting him, but also everything that he represents. And not just him, everything he represents. And remember when Jesus was tempted, when he wasn't caught off guard, he was ready with the word. It was part of his mindset. It was in his head and it was in his heart. He was ready to put the word of God into practice. That's how he was watchful. That's how he was sober-minded. Lastly, as I talk about grace, lean hard. Lean hard on grace. Let it be your cane. Let it be your crutches. Let it carry you. Lean hard. Look at His grace for you. Grace is simply God's favor, but it's undeserving, is it not? It's His goodness. And we want to read His word and we want to cling to it that we might stand firm. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word to equip us to stand firm. Lord, humble our hearts this morning. Lord, give us humble hearts towards one another. Lord, that I pray that this church would continue to be a church that would serve others, to serve pastors like myself who are just ordinary, and to serve others I pray that you would help this church to be watchful and alert.
Lord, that they would lean hard on your grace as the storms come their way, as we're promised. The Christian life is not an easy life. Christ said to carry your cross daily. But Lord, you don't tell us that without equipping us. We thank you that you give us this command to stand firm, but then you tell us how. And that it's not dependent upon us, but it is fully dependent upon you. Father, we thank you as we sung earlier about the firm foundation. Lord, for those of us who are in this room who have experienced your salvation, thank you for what you have done in Christ. Of what he conquered, death and sin. And Father, we pray this morning, if there's anyone here who has yet to trust in Christ, so they have who's yet to humble themselves before you this morning. Perhaps they have not been able to resist the evil one because they've been trying to do it on their own and in their own strength. That this morning they would turn to you and conquer through Christ. Amen.